due to the graphic nature of this haunted place. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Helen's long gown billowed as she floated to center stage. She couldn't see the audience. The spotlight was too bright. But she didn't need to. She could feel them. Their energy made the air seem thick with possibility, with magic. Because she was about to sing the romantic first act of the opera Carmen. The violins cut through the quiet. Helen's body swayed, and her hands caressed her collarbone as the song's first words floated from her lips. Words about music making girls feverish and intoxicated. It was a sentiment she knew all too well. Music made her feel drunk sometimes. She threw a leg up on a stool by center stage to let her knee peek through a slit in her skirt. When the spotlight shut off, plunging the auditorium into darkness, Helen's voice died in her throat. She stood frozen on the stage as the auditorium broke out in a wave of concerned murmurs. The light cue wasn't until the end of the song. Helen wondered if there was a problem, but no one came to her, so she had no idea what to do. Just then, a hand grabbed her arm and she relaxed. It must be the stagehand here to help her off. She thanked him and asked about the light, but the voice that answered wasn't familiar. It was gravelly and furious. It whispered that she was polluting the stage. And if she couldn't sing for God, she shouldn't be allowed to sing at all. Helen felt a wave of panic. She pulled away from the stranger, but his grip on her arm grew tighter. She tried to scream, but her wail was cut off as his hands wrapped around her throat. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Ryman Auditorium, one of country music's most revered venues, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we walk through the hallowed halls of the Ryman Auditorium. The Ryman Auditorium sits proudly on Nashville's bustling Fifth Avenue. The famed music hall's massive brick exterior boasts a facade of arched stained glass windows. And inside, rows upon rows of wooden benches can seat the thousands of fans who come to worship at the Mother Church of Country Music. The Ryman holds a godlike place in country music history, so it's no surprise that the building was originally a church. It opened in 1892 as the Union Gospel Tabernacle, commissioned by steamboat captain and born-again Christian Thomas Ryman. A stage was built in the tabernacle in 1901, 
allowing lecturers and performers to utilize the massive space as an event hall. After Thomas Ryman died in 1904, the Ryman stage began hosting operas, concerts, political debates, and eventually became the home to the Grand Ole Opry in 1943. For 31 years, the music radio show recorded at the Ryman, turning up-and-comers like Patsy Cline and Dolly Parton into stars. But the glitzy Ryman Auditorium of today wasn't necessarily in line with its benefactor's original holy vision. And if your life's work was erecting a church, you might be furious at seeing it defiled by sacrilegious music. Christopher lit a candle. He knelt in front of the altar and stared at its small but mighty brass cross. Each night, after everyone at the tabernacle had left, Christopher said a prayer, thanking God for pulling him out of disgrace. The candlelight was the only thing illuminating the massive church, and its glow didn't stretch far. Rows of sleek wooden pews hid beneath the inky darkness. He could smell their fresh varnish. Over a thousand souls could sit in this church, the biggest house of God in Tennessee. And he had built it. But Christopher hadn't always been a servant of God. Before, he was a bad man, a lying scoundrel who worried more about where to get his next drink than how to get right with the Lord. But after hearing a reverend preach, his eyes were open to his sinful ways. So he sold his fleet of ships and dirty saloons and used the money to build this palatial house of prayer. He'd even stopped wearing colorful clothes, opting instead for a solemn gray ensemble. Christopher sang a gospel while he caressed the brass cross. He used to use his voice for body drinking songs, but the voice was God's gift. One must always treat it as such. Suddenly, a soft applause echoed through the church. Christopher startled and turned around to see a man emerge from the darkness. It took him a moment to realize who it was, his old friend Henry. Christopher tensed. He hadn't seen Henry since they'd spent a drunken evening at a madam's boarding house together. Henry was an unrepentant, lustful kind of man, the kind of thing that didn't belong standing at a house of God. Just looking at him reminded Christopher of his old life. Disgust curdled his belly. Henry looked around, commenting on what a nice place Christopher had set up. He mused that it must have been expensive. Christopher sneered. So that was it. Henry wanted money. Christopher didn't have much. He put everything he had into the church, but he wouldn't give it to Henry anyway. He would never invest in sin again. He told Henry to get out. Henry's face turned cold. Christopher must have thought he was better than him now, Henry sneered. But he was still a scoundrel at heart. Henry's eyes glinted with mockery as he began to hum. Christopher recognized the tune. He and Henry used to drunkenly sway to this melody in taverns, pulling women onto their laps and cheating one another out of money. Listening to the rancid song in that holy space made Christopher's chest tighten with anger. He shouted at Henry to leave, but Henry just hummed louder. His voice grated on Christopher, sharply prodding at his very soul. Every reverberating echo was like a dagger. Christopher's hand suddenly lashed out and slapped Henry across the face. The two men stared at one another in shock. And then, 
Henry lunged. He punched Christopher in the neck, and the two toppled to the foot of the altar. Christopher tried to fend Henry off, but Henry was faster. His fists flew, pummeling into Christopher's chest. Henry always had a temper, but so did Christopher. With a roar, Christopher shoved Henry off of him and grabbed the brass cross. He swung it hard. The cross might not have been big, but it was very heavy. It rushed through the air and smashed into Henry's skull. Henry dropped to the ground, and Christopher staggered to his feet, panting. He stared at his old friend's body, waiting for him to rise. Christopher nudged him with a foot, but Henry's body was limp. The only movement was a halo of blood, slowly expanding around his head on the altar's floor. Christopher dropped the cross, and his whole body began to tremble. He looked around at the empty tabernacle, his body surging with panic. What he'd just done was evil, and now it was polluting the house of God. He had to get Henry out of there, and then he'd decide what to do. Christopher pulled Henry's body out the back door and into the rain. The road in front of the tabernacle was blessedly deserted. No one saw what he'd done. No one had to know. Cold rain pelted against his face as he looked up at the brick facade of the tabernacle. Its grand arched windows looked like eyes peering down at him. He might not have to answer to man, but he'd have to answer to God. Christopher dug his hands into the wet ground and began to carve out a hole. It was the better part of an hour before it was big enough. By the time he was done, his hands were bleeding and his nails split. He shuddered as he pushed Henry inside and stared at his old friend's dead, wide-open eyes. Christopher felt guilt gnawing at his gut like poison. He fell to his knees, hands clasped in prayer. He told God he was sorry. He had only been trying to protect the Lord from hearing the filth that Henry spewed inside his holy walls. Christopher prayed. His voice became a soft, panicked lullaby. And as he sang, the rain stopped. Christopher looked up in awe at the twinkling stars. The night felt fresh, like it had been cleansed. Christopher laughed. It was a sign. God had heard him. He looked into Henry's grave, but this time his guilt was gone. He understood what God was telling him. His mission hadn't been finished when he built the church. He had to make sure it remained sacred. And anyone who defiled the tabernacle was held accountable for their sins. Before Thomas Ryman built the auditorium, he was a successful Nashville businessman. He owned a major riverboat company with a fleet of roughly 35 ships, as well as various side businesses like saloons that allowed him to lead a rowdy, booze-infused lifestyle. However, when famed Southern Methodist preacher Sam Jones came to town, everything changed. Out of curiosity, Ryman visited one of the Reverend's famous tent revivals. To his surprise, Ryman found God. Whatever Sam Jones said that day touched something in Ryman. 
He put all his money into creating a massive church where Reverend Jones could preach to anyone in Nashville who wanted to listen. Ryman passed away in 1904 after what has been referenced as a long and painful illness. But that wasn't the last of him. It's said that his ghost still haunts the Ryman Auditorium, and it isn't fond of acts that might be considered risque. His spirit allegedly interrupted a performance of the opera Carmen, and even forced the actors off the stage. Thomas Ryman sacrificed everything to build a house for God, and it seemed that his spirit lingered afterward to make sure that sacrifice wasn't for naught. Coming up, an aging country singer comes face to face with death. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now back to the story. The Grand Ole Opry is a music radio show that features live performances from America's most promising country stars. In 1943, the Opry came to the Ryman Auditorium, and helped establish Nashville as the place to be in country music. Performers like Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and Patsy Cline graced the Ryman stage during its Ole Opry days. But while the Grand Ole Opry brought the Ryman into the spotlight, some say Thomas Ryman's ghost still lingered in the shadows. Norm poured some whiskey into his coffee from his secret flask, the one he kept strapped to his ankle, the one his manager had no idea existed. But it was the last five minutes before he went on stage, and Norm was alone. He always requested to be alone right before a show. His manager thought it was so he could get in the right headspace, but really, it was so he could sneak a few drinks. Norm glugged a shot from his flask and strapped it back on his ankle. Then he sipped his spiked coffee. The whiskey's warmth spread through his limbs, all the way to his fingertips. But his contentment faded when he stared at his reflection in the mirror. He was an aging country star in his 50s. But truthfully, he looked way older. He could thank his hard drinking for that. He tried to scale back a few years ago in 74, but hadn't been able to get off the sauce. At least he'd improved. The 60s had been a blur. His lyrics were all he had to remember back then. He was what you call a good time singer. Each song was about one of his nights of debauchery. Some in his youth and some later than he'd care to admit. He knew he should move on and sing about more wholesome, age-appropriate things. Something about the meaning of life or being wiser. But truthfully, he was scared to sing about anything else. It would be like a signal to his fans that he was over the hill. He'd heard about old singers' ticket sales dwindling until they had to beg people to come to their shows. 
the thought of standing on that stage and hearing silence instead of deafening cheers made him nauseous. Nah, he'd stick with the old stuff, tried and true. Norm felt a pang of sympathy as he stared at the dusty bulbs that lined the mirror. The Ryman had been built in the 1800s, so everything was dusty. But he bet that years ago the place had been spick and span. He sipped his coffee, reflecting that the Ryman had seen better days. Just like him. Suddenly, something hit his hand and his mug went flying. The cup exploded against the mirror, sending a spider web of cracks across its surface. Norm stared at his splintered reflection and swore. Maybe he'd had more to drink than he thought. He hadn't destroyed a dressing room in ten years. His manager was going to be furious. Norm was trying to think up a plausible excuse, but he was distracted by something moving behind him, obscured by the cracked mirror. He whipped around just as a shadow disappeared behind a clothing rack. He slowly rose. Someone else was in his dressing room. Maybe a fan. He didn't know how they'd gotten in, but he was worried that they saw him break the mug. He didn't want someone claiming he had arthritis or something. He could see the headline, Norm Bellows so old he can't even hold a coffee cup. He approached the clothing rack and shoved one of the old tassel vests to the side. But nothing was there. He took a breath. He needed to focus. He was Norm Bellow, and there were more than a thousand people gathered in the Ryman Auditorium right now, waiting to see him. A knock on the door startled him, but he relaxed when he heard the stage manager's voice. He had one minute. Norm grabbed his guitar and plucked a few tunes, and hummed some of the song, Living for the Rush. But when he looked up at the cracked mirror, a shadowy figure stood behind him. He whipped around to stare straight into the wide eyes of a very strange, very gray man. He was clad in the color from head to toe. Even his skin had an ashen pallor to it. It was almost transparent making him look more like a wisp of smoke than a living, breathing human being. Norm stared at him, transfixed. A misty hand reached out and stroked Norm's throat. The icy, cold touch sent goosebumps all over his body. He heard the figure speak in a snide, gravelly voice, saying that Norm was wasting his God-given talent on sinful music and Norm better not go on stage to pollute the tabernacle with this trash. Norm couldn't move. This couldn't be real. He was just drunk, seeing things. But then, the hand tightened around his throat, and Norm couldn't breathe. He flailed, but his hand passed harmlessly through the gray man's arm. The door of the dressing room swung open, and the hand released him. Norm looked around in a panic, gasping for breath, but the gray man had disappeared. In his place was the Ryman stage manager, nervously asking him if he was okay. Norm jumped up and grabbed his guitar. He was shaking like a leaf, but he knew that he needed to get out of this room. Something was deeply wrong with it. Norm followed the stage manager through the bustle of the backstage, like he was walking through a dream. The moments in the dressing room already felt like they'd happened years ago. 
but the voice of that thing still echoed in his mind, calling out Norm for his sinful words. Norm knew the Ryman had been at church back in the day. Was this some kind of religious sign that he needed to change his music? But he couldn't just change. The people in this building came here to see Norm Bellow and his greatest hits. If he stopped giving them what they wanted, they'd realize he was an old has-been. And then, what was he good for? Norm strode out onto the dark stage, clutching his guitar and strummed a few chords. He relaxed as the crowd's cheers reverberated around him. All that garbage back in the dressing room was just his paranoid mind. Here he was, in his element, and he knew just what to do. He began to croon one of his crowd-pleasers, Whiskey Nights. But as he got into it, the cheering began to fade. He squinted past the blinding spotlight, trying to see the audience. The auditorium, which just moments ago had been filled with screaming fans, was now only half full. Norm felt a twinge of anxiety. Had people left? And then he noticed above the audience, the ghostly gray man from his dressing room was leaning over the rail of the mezzanine balcony. Norm blinked against the glaring stage lights. They must have been playing tricks with his eyes. But no matter how many times he blinked, the gray man remained, watching him. The crowd grew fainter, and Norm realized the audience was even emptier than it was just moments ago. His fans were literally disappearing, one by one. What was once half full was now only a third, and then a quarter, until the auditorium was completely empty and Norm was bathed in complete, suffocating silence. Norm trembled, his eyes filled with tears. It had happened. His fans had finally abandoned him. He looked down at the only thing he had left, his guitar. But the hand gripping its strings was gnarled with flaking, thin skin. An old man's hand. He suddenly realized that hand was his. Norm gasped and touched his face. Where there was once charming scruff were now deep, sagging wrinkles. He'd somehow aged considerably since leaving his dressing room. That was why the audience had fled. He was no longer a middle-aged country rocker. He was a withered corpse devastation seared through him, and with a scream, he smashed his guitar onto the stage floor. (coughs) Just then, a cough punctured the silence, and then the sound of murmuring. The audience had returned to the normal, packed crowd that had been there just moments ago, but they weren't cheering. They were staring at him in silent shock. Norm had imagined the ghost, but his screams had been real. He backed away and hurried off the stage. Norm ran outside and jumped into his waiting black car. His heart pounded. Tears wet his cheeks, though he didn't remember crying. He needed a drink, now. His trembling hands yanked the flask from his leg, and he tossed back what was left. He closed his eyes, relaxing as that warmth spread through him. But when he opened his eyes, he saw that he wasn't alone. 
The gray man from the dressing room sat beside him. He told Norm that if he couldn't use his voice for God's work, he shouldn't use it at all. His misty hands reached forward to cover Norm's mouth and nose, cutting off his air supply. Norm struggled, but it was futile. His hands wouldn't move, and he couldn't knock them free. He felt his body grow weaker. As he drifted into darkness, he realized that he should have just changed his songs. Because mortality had been coming for him no matter what. And by refusing to embrace it, he had only moved it along. In 1953, 29-year-old country music star Hank Williams famously died of a heart attack in his car on the way to play a show. Williams suffered from an undiagnosed case of spina bifida and had become addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs to deal with the pain, addictions that most likely led to his death. Williams' substance abuse led to his dismissal from the Grand Ole Opry, and it's said that he continues to haunt the Ryman Auditorium to this day. Workers and performers have reported seeing the misty form of Hank Williams in the Ryman after hours, and singer Bill Anderson claims that the electricity went out while he was playing one of Williams' songs. An investigation couldn't determine what had caused the blackout, leading some to suspect it was supernatural. But Hank Williams isn't the only star with a sinister connection to the Ole Opry. There are rumors that past performers were cursed after they left the venue. By some estimates, over 35 people connected to the Grand Ole Opry and the Ryman Auditorium have died in unnatural ways. Famous singer Patsy Cline, who was known to be incredibly attached to the Ryman, was killed in a plane crash. Some believe that her spirit returned to the venue after her untimely death to haunt its halls. Other country stars have been shot or become addicts or victims of robberies. Leading theorists blame their time performing at the Ryman as the cause of their fate. In 1974, the Grand Ole Opry left the Ryman Auditorium after 31 years. But that didn't mean the ghosts left with it. Coming up, an aspiring singer finds her voice, only to risk having it torn from her throat. Now back to the story. In the late 1800s, the newly erected Union Gospel Tabernacle quickly ran out of space to accommodate the number of Nashville residents who wanted to attend services. In response to growing demand, Thomas Ryman began raising funds for a balcony that could accommodate larger crowds. The Tabernacle hosted a reunion of the United Confederate Veterans in 1897, and the group donated the needed funds to help establish the balcony, which was named after the group. The extra space was meant to provide more seating for worshipers wanting to hear Reverend Sam Jones preach, but much like the Ryman itself, the balcony's original purpose changed with time. Crowds grew as popular music acts came to town, and the balcony goers became known as a rowdier bunch than those below. The balcony has also become a supernatural hotspot for Ryman's original ghost. It's the perfect perch from which to watch over the soul of the building. Mm 
Janet hummed as she patrolled the empty theater hallway. She was trying to get the bridge of her new song just right, but it was giving her some trouble. She sighed, looking down at her security guard uniform and felt a wave of desolation. Maybe the song wasn't right, because even though she was in the right place, she was in the wrong job. Janet had taken a security gig at the Ryman so that she could be close to where the magic happened. She wanted to be a singer her entire life and moved to Nashville a year ago to follow her dreams. But she hadn't really gotten anywhere. So when a post opened up at the Ryman Auditorium, she took it, even though it was for night patrol. Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, Elvis, all of the greats had strutted across the Ryman stage toward glory. Janet walked across that same stage every night, though no one was there to watch her. Yet. But she knew she was good, and one day, she'd have an audience just as big as all her idols. Janet opened the double doors that led to the massive auditorium. She clicked on her mag light and waved it inside. She'd already checked the room at the beginning of her shift, but she had a feeling that if she stood on the stage, the elusive bridge for her song would come to her. Janet stepped inside and inhaled deeply. She could smell the dust in the air, but that dust held the magic of music history. She strode down the aisle, her flashlight's beam bouncing off of the shiny wooden bench seats until she reached the front of the theater. Janet hauled herself onto the stage and stood out to face her imaginary fans. Her eyes slowly adjusted to the dark, but it stayed just dim enough for her to easily picture thousands of cheering fans singing along to her music. She began to tap her foot as she sang the lyrics of her song. It was about driving fast on a highway with nowhere to go. A slick song that she was totally proud of. She mimed grabbing the microphone. Even with her clunky uniform, she moved like a star. And then suddenly, it hit her. The song's bridge. She couldn't say how, but the words floated out of her like they'd always been there, just ready to sing. When she finished, she faced the seating area, arms raised for a bow. But she saw something move in the upper balcony, hovering in the darkness like a coil of smoke. As her eyes adjusted, its form became clearer. It was a man. She couldn't make out his face and wondered if maybe it was Dave, the other night guard. But she'd just seen him at the office. Or maybe it was a trespasser. Her heart pounded at the thought. She hadn't had to deal with this kind of thing yet, and it freaked her out. She was a singer, not a cop. She'd called Dave for backup. Janet grabbed her walkie and whispered that there was a guy in the auditorium. Dave's voice chirped through the walkie and said he'd be right there. But Janet should make sure the intruder didn't leave. Janet looked up at the balcony nervously. She didn't know the first thing about confronting a trespasser, even with her training. But she didn't want to lose this job. She needed to come to the Ryman every day. It was the only thing that made her feel somewhat close to her dreams. She yelled to the man that she was coming up and he better not move. She pulled a baton from her belt and hustled to the stairwell at the far end of the theater. She walked carefully up the stairs and burst into the balcony but no one was there. Suddenly, the lights in the theater burst on. 
The searing light felt like a slap in the face after spending so long at the pitch dark. Dave's voice yelled from below, asking where the guy was. Janet was at a loss. Maybe the dark had made her see things. She'd been vibing pretty hard with her song. It could have been an overactive imagination. She apologized to Dave and headed back down. But when she stepped below the balcony, she heard creaking from above. She looked up and saw little wisps of dust falling from the rafters, like someone was walking above them. She and Dave shared a tense look and raced back up the stairs. But once again, there was no one in the balcony. Dave shook his head, murmuring that he didn't have time for this. He'd meet her back at the guard station. Janet nodded. She said she'd check the room one more time. They split up and Janet walked down the aisle up the stage. She pulled herself back up again and faced the auditorium, now with the lights on. And this time, she saw the man clearly. He stood in the balcony, dressed in gray, staring at her somberly. Her breath caught in her throat. She'd just been up there. Had he been hiding? Watching her? Before she could do anything, he called out, his voice echoing around the room. He told her to sing. And then he vanished, like he'd evaporated into thin air. Janet's pulse quickened. She must have imagined it. People don't just disappear. This stage usually seemed to pull her in. But right now, all she wanted to do was get out. Janet turned to leave and screamed. The gray man had appeared right beside her on the stage. He stood inches from her now, his somber face staring into hers. He told her not to leave until she used what God had given her in the right way. Janet trembled. She didn't know what that meant. Her lip quivered as she opened her mouth, but no words came out. Her mind was a jumble of thoughts, trying desperately to process what she was seeing. Was this a person? A ghost? The gray man's insistent gaze bore into hers. Again, he ordered her to sing. She felt a laugh bubble up in her chest at the irony of it. She was standing on the stage of her dreams with someone requesting a performance. The man brought his hands up around Janet's throat and started to squeeze. She gasped at the pain. She didn't know why this thing wanted her to sing, but she had no choice. She had to try. Janet stammered out the song she'd been singing in the darkness just moments ago, about driving fast on the highway. But as she sang, she saw the gray man's face darken. He whispered that she wasn't allowed to sing if her words were sinful. He tightened his grip around her throat. Janet gasped as she struggled. Tears sprang to her eyes, and she choked out the only religious song she knew, an old hymn her mom used to sing to her. His grip loosened, and she fell to the stage floor, choking and heaving. She could barely breathe, but she kept singing until her breath returned to her. When she looked up, the old man was gone. She slowly stood, and then she ran for the door. As she hurried out, she wondered if performing wasn't as easy as jumping on a stage. Maybe she wasn't quite ready. 
for an audience. Both security guards and maintenance workers alike have seen what they call the Gray Man in the Ryman Auditorium. There, he usually lingers in the balcony after hours. Some think he's a Confederate soldier, but it's possible it's just Thomas Ryman, clad in somber grays, keeping watch on the performers of the Ryman to make sure they're not disgracing the theater's holy origins. The building went through extensive renovations in the early 1990s. A new addition was built, the floors were revarnished, dressing rooms were added, and air conditioning was installed. Then it reopened again in 1994 to continue its country music legacy. Emmylou Harris, Willie Nelson, and Chet Atkins are just some of the stars that have graced its stage since its rebirth. Some of these musicians might have seen Thomas Ryman stalking the halls, ensuring they're on their best behavior. But maybe Ryman doesn't mean anyone harm. He's just a reminder. Performing and singing can be a beautifully free form of creative expression, but it's still a gift. And if you squander it, someone out there just might take it away. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson.